What's up guys? Welcome back to another episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical, where we talk all things training, nutrition, and mindset optimization, while making sure to not lose sight of the practical and applicable side of things. I'm your host, Jordan Lips, and I just wanted to say thank you for taking time out of your day to tune in. I appreciate you. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today's Q&A episode, I pulled a couple questions off of Instagram, and honestly, there were two of them I actually answered already, but I just really wanted to expand on them, and we're going to start with one of those now. First question, is there anything wrong or better about training, about weight training fasted? Now, this question usually comes in the context of early morning training, right? You train at 5 or 6 or 7 or 8 a.m., and you're wondering, do I need to get up 90 minutes before my session and get this perfectly constructed pre-workout meal, or I just can't perform, and I'll just shrivel up into a raisin and not make any gains? No. You're totally fine to train fasted. You will perform totally fine, especially if what you're doing is like 30 to 75 minutes of mostly strength and hypertrophy work. You're not waking up in this entirely glycogen depleted state like where you need to have this pre-workout meal to make sure that you're fueling your training like sure you you might you might perform a little bit better with food in you than without food in you but shit if you train at five six seven eight in the morning and your choices are getting up at seven and training at eight or getting up at or, or 720 or whatever it is that you need to do or getting up you know 60 minutes earlier before that so that you can eat i'd rather see people sleep for an extra 60 minutes i think that over the long term is going to have actually a bigger benefit than the little bit you might perform better with some food in you. Now, let's say you do train at five, six, seven, eight in the morning, and you really prefer training fasted, right? Both from a consistency standpoint, like that's going to be the thing that works best with your life. Maybe you'd rather sleep a little bit longer or you get up and you take care of the kids or I would say that stressing the post-workout window would be advantageous for you in that situation. Yes, you're not in this totally glycogen depleted state when you wake up and you're going to perform totally fine in your workout. However, you know, we talk a little bit about, you know, often people talk about this anabolic window, right? Well, I would say the anabolic window is probably not really a thing or it's much bigger than we we thought it was and thus less consequential, except in this situation. If you're training fasted, I would stress getting at the very least some protein within an hour or two of training, um, ideally some carbohydrate as well which does kind of bring us to the conversation of like, listen, if you train first thing in the morning and you give a shit about maximizing your muscle growth and strength, probably don't intermittent fast, right? Probably train, if you're gonna train fasted first thing in the morning, like at least have some protein very shortly thereafter. Now, again, intermittent fasting really quickly, like there's nothing special about fasting for that long. Like it doesn't fucking matter. So if you, like the whole point of intermittent fasting is pushing your your calories, it's like a daily calorie cycling, it's just a, pushing your calories later in the day so that you can, for a number of reasons, maybe it helps you have, you know, it helps you adhere to your deficit more. It helps you enjoy your life more. It helps you make more use of your calories. It makes it more feel like normal life. Fine. If that's you and you want to push your calories later in the day, that's cool. Just mix up a whey protein shake and water and bring it with you to the gym or sip it on your way home or have some egg whites or something when you get home. Like that's cool. You don't need to blow the caloric bank right out of the gate, but you should have some protein very soon after training if you're training first thing in the morning and fasted. Second question, how should I track alcohol calories on my fitness pal? Man, the fact that like just the the fact that this is a question just 
really brings me back to like why you should be counting just calories and protein. And I made a post maybe last week. It was like only two scenarios. You should count all the macros. The first scenario is if you're a performance athlete and you really need to like eke out every inch of performance and you need that upper that upper part of the pyramid. You need to do the 1% things. And that's what, you know, that's what this, uh, th this question kind of denotes. And the second scenario where you should count all the macros is if left to your own devices, you would avoid a certain macro out of fear. Like if you have a natural tendency to avoid carbohydrates because you think they're bad, and if you were only counting calories and protein, you would avoid them altogether. If that's not you, which is that leaves 99.9% .9 of the population, man, counting calories and protein is the way to go. Which brings me to the questions like, how should I track alcohol calories on my fitness pal? And, and usually this question is like, should I count them as carbs or fats or, you know, what's the calculation? Man, count it as calories and no or very low protein, right? Depending on what you're drinking. Like a Tito's, I don't care if you're making those calories into carbs and tracking them as carbs. It's alcohol. It's neither a carb or a fat, technically. Just count it as calories. End of story saves you time doing a calculation that doesn't actually help you because at the end of the day, it's neither carbs or fats anyway. So you're just, you're just, you know, using a calculation to bring the alcohol into carbs and fats when that's not even true. So why even bother doing that calculation? Just track it as calories. And if you're just tracking it as calories and protein, or, or if you're just tracking calories and protein, a lot of these like questions that really truthfully don't fucking matter. Like you just have to stop asking them. You're like, wow, I guess it doesn't really matter. Like, I can just go the fuck on with my life and deal with the stuff that really matters like this. And, and I'm not, and again, I'm, not, I'm trying to be as helpful as possible. I don't mean this in a mean way, but like if you're out there and you're thinking or you've ever stressed about how to track your alcohol calories as a, you know, should I track them as a carb or as a protein or, or, or as a sugar or like, man, you're probably dealing with like really the 1% kind of stuff. And you'd probably do best to like shift your efforts to more important things. Just track them as calories. Just track everything as calories and protein. And yes, there are certain times where tracking carbs and fats can be beneficial. And I have some some clients who count all the macros, but 99 out of 100 times, tracking calories and protein is going to give you all the all the best benefits of tracking all the macros with way less the headache and a little bit more flexibility and freedom, if not a lot of a lot more flexibility and freedom. Cool. Third question: What is your favorite progression scheme? And I'm gonna. I'm going to take this as progression scheme for muscle growth um, and, and progression scheme for anybody wondering, just like, how do you decide when to go up and wait? How do you decide when to go up in reps? How often are you going up in reps or weight or sets? Man, I just want to start by saying like any progression scheme, anything where you have some sort of model that you're following where it's like, okay, after this many times, I go up this many pounds. After I hit this many reps, I go up in weight or after I go up in weight, I go down in reps. Like, the fact that if you're putting any thought into it, you're already going to see exponential gains beyond somebody who's just fucking winging it. So, I don't necessarily have a favorite progression scheme for hypertrophy. What we want to do in all of these cases where we're dealing with something that some people, like the average person might think is complex, I know there are people listening, like progression scheme, what the fuck is he talking about? Is get the best bang for your buck Get the best bang for your emotional and mental effort buck. So how much energy am I going to expend on deciding which progression scheme and focusing on this and, you know, really dialing in the details of reps and sets? How much effort am I going to put in for how much return? So for me, double progression 
gives us an amazing bang for our buck. One, because it's objective, honest, and simple. And two, because it actually fucking works. So obviously you can't just have something that's easy if it doesn't actually work. So double progression states that, let's say you're doing three sets of eight to 12 reps in the bench press. Double progression would state that you max out the rep range across all the sets before going up in weight. So if on week one, you come in for your three times, eight to 12 bench press, and you do 11, 10, and nine on your three sets, you would come in on week two and say, did I max out the rep range, max being 12 here, eight to 12, did I max out the rep range across all the sets? No. So guess what? You're staying at the same weight. So maybe this week you went from 11, 10, 9 last week. And maybe this week, miraculously, you get 12, 12, and 12, just for just for example's sake here. Okay, you got 12, 12, and 12. You come in on week three. Say, did I max out the rep range across all the sets? Yes, I got 12, 12, and 12. Now you go up in weight. Maybe you add five pounds, 10 pounds, you move up to the next dumbbell. And guess what? Your reps fall again. And now you get nine, eight, and six. Cool. Guess what you're doing the following week? The same weight until you get back up to 12, 12, and 12. Now, for anybody out there who's never tracked their, their workouts, their weight, their reps, and their sets, for the first year or two of working out, you you probably don't have to. I, I Listen, I, I don't want to let beginners off easy and say you shouldn't track anything because you don't have to. Man, you'll get better progress if you track stuff, period, end of story. But sometimes that can be something that that is daunting for beginners and isn't something they just want to have fun with it. And that's totally cool. I support you getting into fitness for fun and 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 not necessarily fucking tracking every weight and rep and set from day one. I, I hear you. And most of us don't get into it that way. We get into fitness through a group class or just going to the gym with a buddy. Like, and that's cool. For the first year or two, you probably don't have to track a thing. You just fucking look at a dumbbell and you get bigger and stronger, period. End of story. But eventually... It requires more. It requires, quote unquote, progressive overload. It requires intentionally and continually pushing yourself to do more over time. And the example that I love is like, at the end of the day, it's it's irrational for your subconscious to walk into the gym and push yourself every time. Like, you will not intuitively push yourself every time. That is why tracking your workouts is so important because it's objective. It tells you, hey, this is what you did last time. Thus, this is what you're going to do this time so that we can continually overload. And yes, you might not overload in the sense of beating yourself every single week, but I'm talking about every single unit of time over time beating yourself. And if you're not tracking anything, you will not intuitively walk into the gym and continually push yourself past where you've been. Listen, this actually becomes more so like the stronger you get. Like if you're bench pressing like 225 or you're squatting, you know, first of all, it goes for anybody, but like take this example. Man, imagine you're doing 225 sets, a set of 225 in the squat for let's say 10 and it, it's just unbearable. It's exhausting. It's cardiovascularly exhausting. You're muscularly exhausting. You want to die at the end of it. Like, do you think that you'll come in the next time and just remember and want to and intuitively decide to do 11. You're like, yep, today's 11. Fuck no. I'm going to do seven or six or eight or, or 200 pounds. Like intuitively, you're not going to just walk in and continually beat yourself. The only thing that's going to get you to continually beat yourself 
is the fact that it's staring you in the face in your training log. The fact that you look at your training log and say, ah, 225 for 10 in the squat last week. Guess what? 225 for 11 in the squat this week. Only that level of objectivity is going to force you to beat yourself week to week or month to month or block to block, uh, depending on how advanced you are and, and your capacity for uh, uh, strength gains in, in periods of time. Um, which is why after that first year or two, people are like, oh, your newbie gains are done. Like you won't see fast rates of progress. Like, man, you want to know what round two of newbie gains is where you see growth as fast as you did when you first picked up a weight the first time you track your workouts for a year. Like you get really steep newbie gains in the beginning and then things probably level out. And then somebody waltzes into your life who actually pushes you to track your workouts. And you're like, man, I put 60 pounds on my bench this year or whatever it is where you otherwise would have, you've been benching the same for the last you know five years, but finally you tracked your workouts and objectively forced yourself due to the training log telling you you had to, to beat yourself week to week, month to month or block to block. So I'm a huge advocate of, of, of tracking your workouts. I love double progression because it's super objective. It's just saying, hey, you max out the reps on all the sets. And until you do that, you stay the same weight. And once you do that, you can go up and wait and you just rinse and rinse and repeat and repeat. So if you have another progression scheme you like, maybe you're using a more um, advanced technique. You're using a reps and reserve technique where you allow for your clients or yourself to either go up in reps or weight each week to week, that's totally fine too. But man, it's having any progression, right? There's, it's kind of binary. It's like not not tracking your workouts and not having a progression scheme and not focusing on, on progressive overload in an objective sense with measures and the things, you, like tangible things that you can view and, and that force you to move or not doing that. And once you are doing it, once you're tracking something in your workouts and you're pushing yourself week to week, like man, progression scheme is less important. A lot of them can work. At the end of the day, it's are you tracking and are you looking back at that, that training log week to week to decide should you do more? Excellent. Next question. Why are the last few pounds the hardest? Ugh. I put the ugh there um, just because I can feel your pain in the question. Why are the last few pounds the hardest? Man, if I had a dollar for every time. Well, Let's just call it what it is. The last few pounds are the hardest. They are the hardest. And they're hardest for physiological reasons. They're hardest for psychological reasons. They're hardest for habitual reasons, consistency reasons. And I'll try my best to break this down without jumping around too much. But physiologically speaking, not psychological, not habitual, but physiologically speaking, I think of two, two things come to mind. One is that the last few pounds implies that you've already lost some weight previously, right? So maybe let's take the context of you've lost 30 pounds and you have 10 to go, let's say. Well, each pound that you're losing now is a higher percentage of your total body weight. So while you were losing a pound a week, a pound and a half a week, three three quarters of a pound a week, those were a, 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 the, like the, to, to get that same percentage of your total body weight, it might look like 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5 pounds per week because you are smaller. So when people are like, you lose one to two pounds per week, like, we should be focused on losing weight in relation to your total body weight. If you're three, four, 500 pounds, you can lose faster than somebody who's 130 pounds and wants to get shredded. You can lose faster in an absolute sense. Sorry, you can lose faster in an absolute sense as more pounds per week because you have more pounds. And we're talking about losing at a rate in relation to your body weight. And usually just for reference, usually something like 0.25% up to 1% of your body weight per week 
is really fantastic progress. Um, re I mean, realistic progress, I always say zero to 1% of your body weight per week because it's just not a, a sure thing that you're going to decide to be in a deficit and that it's actually going to work out for you like right off the bat. Um, so, so taking that number 0.25% to 1% of your body weight per week, when you were 180 pounds, that was whatever, 0.25% of that up all the way up to 1.8 pounds. Now you're 140 pounds. That 1% is now down to 1.4. So if you're comparing similar rates of loss in an absolute sense, you're not going to see the same rates of loss. In a relative sense, as a percentage of your total body weight, you might see those numbers be very similar. And that's where I'd rather you look. And the, the lighter you get and the more weight that you lose, you need to adjust the potential for your rate of loss because you are now smaller. Secondly, from a physiological standpoint, you've undergone some metabolic adaptation, right? You've been in a deficit for quite some time. And un unfortunately, actually, I think this question usually comes from people who have lost, let's take that same example, lost 30 pounds, want to lose the next 10 and are still plugging away, have not taken a break, right? So my first advice is if this is you, if you've lost a certain amount of weight and you've been doing it for a long time, more than 12 weeks and you haven't taken a break, my answer as to why the last few pounds are the hardest is because you need to take a break. You need to physiologically take a break, psychologically take a break at maintenance for a, for a significant period of time, at least half the time that you were trying, that you were losing the weight, at least, at least half the time you were in a deficit all the way up to a full length of time equal to the time you were in a deficit. So if it was a 16 week diet, man, eight to 16 weeks at maintenance before you make that last push. Think of it as the base camp before the peak of Everest. Like you, if you rest and digest and get a good meal and a good night's sleep or a couple, I don't know how that works at Everest. Like you just, you say your prayers, you talk to the Sherpa and you're like, okay, how, how long are we staying here? Like, but you don't just go up to the peak right away. So I know I got off track on the metabolic adaptation, but usually you've undergone some metabolic adaptation because you haven't taken a maintenance phase to try and reverse any of that metabolic adaptation. And let's say when you were, you know, 30 pounds ago, you were eating, I'm going to make this up, 2000 calories. And now as you've started to lose, now you're eating, you know, you've had to drop your calories, 19, 18, 17, 16, maybe you're eating 1500 calories now. Man, the last few pounds are the hardest because you've undergone some metabolic adaptation. And in order to keep progress moving at the same rate, you have to eat a lot less calories, a lot less, I mean, a lot less calories than you did when you were starting, right? When you were eating 2000 calories in the beginning, maybe losing weight. Now you're eating, you know, 16, 17 and things have stalled out. That makes it harder because guess what? You have to go even lower, which makes being consistent, you know, we, which we can turn to in a second, but you've undergone some metabolic adaptation and it's taking really low calories to keep things moving, which is freaking hard. Or you've undergone some metabolic adaptation and you haven't made any adjustments. So maybe you lost those 30 pounds and you've made very few adjustments or none at all. You know, some people, some people can set their calories and get a couple of weeks or a month or two without ch making a change but eventually you're gonna have to make a change. So if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I just lost three quarters of the weight I want and I'm going for that last quarter and you haven't changed your calories at all. You've undergone some metabolic adaptation. You're going to need to drop your calories for a number of reasons, right? You're, you are now 30 pounds lighter, which means your BMR is down. You're just a smaller person, takes less calories to feed you and, and fuel you. Also your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, your NEAT, your subconscious movement comes down when you diet. So if you're, trying to get those last few calories and you have never changed your calories, that's probably what you should do because you've undergone some metabolic adaptation and you need to continually assess objectively and obviously safely, smartly, 
if that's a word, um, intelligently, you know, do you need to decrease your calories? Now, man, I wish it was just physiological. I wish we could just say, yep, it's, you know, metabolic adaptation, you maybe have to go lower in calories. Or you've been in a diet for too long, we need a maintenance period. We need to pause at that, you know, base, at that, that, that uh, pit stop before the peak of Everest. You know, each pound is a higher percentage of the total body weight you have left. Like, I wish it was that. Like, those are fun. It's fun to talk physiological. And that's where, that's where the optimal versus practical, like, it's sometimes like the science versus the practice, right? And it's like scientifically, physiologically speaking, there are answers. You either have to drop your calories a little bit lower because you haven't, or you've been dieting for too long without a break and metabolic adaptation has brought your calories super low and you, you can't feasibly go lower. But man, more often than not, and we're going to go back to the maintenance period taking a break, more often than not, you're just sick of it. You're just mentally fatigued. You're just sick of dieting. And this almost always leads to a decrease in adherence, a decrease in tracking accuracy, a decrease in consistency. And I'm not blaming anyone. If you've been in a deficit for eight to 12 weeks and you're exactly as meticulous. You're weighing exactly the same. You're getting the exact same amount of steps. You're not missing a fucking beat. Man, you're something of a unicorn. Like most of us, generally speaking, on the whole, the longer you're in a deficit, the less consistent you'll be with your habits, at least in an absolute sense from like, you won't be as perfect as you were or as, you know, full throttle pedal to the metal on across all fronts as you were in the beginning. And that's okay. You're only human. But... That comes back to needing a maintenance phase. So if you're 8, 12, God forbid, more than that, 14, 16 weeks into a deficit and things have stalled, sure, it could be physiological. It could be you haven't raised your, you haven't lowered your calories or it could be you need to raise your calories. But man, more often than not, you're just not being accurate, consistent, adherent anymore like you were in the beginning. So the last few pounds are the hardest for physiological reasons. But more often than not, they're also the hardest because you're just fucking sick of dieting. And I think in both in both sense, physiological, psychological, taking a prolonged period, and I say prolonged on purpose. I'm not talking about a one to two diet break, uh, one to two week diet break. If you were 180 pounds, right? And this example, you want to be 140, but right now you're 150, and you haven't taken a prolonged period of uh, eight to 16 weeks at maintenance. Good luck getting those last 10 pounds. It's going to be it's going to be hard no matter what, right? Because you're smaller. Some of those physiological reasons. You are just smaller. Rates of progress are going to be down because of, you know, you're losing in relation to your total body weight and now you're smaller. But man, it's going to be really, really difficult if you try and diet straight through. And when I say difficult, I literally just mean impossible. Like I just literally mean impossible. You will not make it in one shot, especially with the kind of magnitude that we're talking about, 30, 40 pounds of weight loss. You don't want to diet 10 pounds in one shot? Hell yeah, you can do that. In fact, I'm cool with you dieting up to 10% of your body weight within one phase. But once you've hit that like 10% of your body weight, I'll be very clear, I don't want to gloss over this point. If you've been in a deficit for longer, and I mean in a deficit for longer than 12 weeks without taking at least six weeks of intentional maintenance, it's going to be really, really hard to keep that weight off. It's going to be really fucking hard, if not impossible, to continue losing weight in the future. Now, in addition to those time parameters, if you've lost about 10% of your body weight, that number, a little bit plus or minus, but it's nice. It's a nice round number that we can talk about. If you've lost 10% of your body weight, 
chances are it's a really good time to take a prolonged period of maintenance. You don't want to undergo a ton of metabolic adaptation by losing a ton of weight all at once. So for this person, why are the last few pounds the hardest? Man, maybe you've just been fucking dieting too long without a break. Maybe your body's been in deficit for too long without a feeling of, of safety. The last few pounds are the hardest because, you know, imagine running, you know, 250 miles without taking a break. Guess what fucking miles are the hardest? 245, 246, 247, 248, 249, 250. Those are the hardest. First of all, and, and in that same analogy, those are going to be the hardest no matter what. I don't care which breaks you take in, the, in this 250-mile psychotic race that we're doing. Those miles are going to be the hardest anyway, but they're going to be exponentially hard if you try and run them all straight through. See if we have time for one more question here. Cool. Um, this is a light one here. Thoughts on pre-workout supplements. Man. Pre-workout supplements are unnecessary. Let's start with that. They're unnecessary. You don't need them to work out. They're not going to increase your performance to a degree that really is going to make a tangible difference over time. Second, the most effective ingredient in pre-workout supplements is caffeine. So if you like coffee or tea or an energy drink, we could talk about the efficacy of those and, and the safety of those and not even from an unsafe perspective. Some of them have just a fucking shit ton of caffeine. I think bangs have like 350 milligrams, like way too much. Um, but the most active, the most potent, the most beneficial ingredient in your pre-workout supplement is caffeine. Yeah, there's other stuff. There's beta alanine. There's maybe sodium bicarbonate. There's, um, you know, uh, Beta-alanine, I said beta-alanine. Um, there's sodium. I mean, some of those other things might actually be beneficial. There's some nitrous oxide boost boosters. But man, by far and large, the best thing in your pre-workout supplement is caffeine. So if you want to buy a $50 tub of C4 or something um, or, if, you know, whatever, like that's cool. Like you can do that, but you can just as easily have a coffee. And from that perspective of like, taking a stimulant before working out. I think stimulants are great. I think that for me, it makes my workouts more enjoyable. There's some of that mental focus component of the caffeine that really is an enjoyable feeling. Man, it's just fun. And if somebody wants to take a pre-workout supplement or you know, I'll obviously give them the spiel about how you could just have a coffee and you'll get 99% of the way there and it's probably more convenient and cheaper and you might enjoy the taste better. But if someone's like, no, I really like my pre-workout supplement. Okay, that's awesome. I support you. It's not like a, the most expensive thing in the world. And if you like it and it makes you consistent with your workouts and you enjoy it, that's awesome. Like, let's call it what it is. Taking a pre-workout supplement probably for most people feels great. It's a ton of caffeine. There's sometimes some alpha GPC or some of these focus supplements in there. Like, you're in the zone. That's great. Some people get super jittery and their fucking face starts to needle up and they don't enjoy it. They get super red. I know I'm super red right now. Um, didn't have a pre-workout, but like I get super red very easily. So sometimes that happens. I'm like, um, my face gets hot. It's uncomfortable. But if you like pre-workout supplements, I support you. Just don't make them out to be A, necessary or B, special or C, like helpful to a degree that over time you'll actually see a huge marked difference. Now you will see a huge marked difference is if taking pre-workout or in this case, just caffeine makes you super consistent with your workouts and you enjoy them more and it makes you happy. Like, Fuck yeah, do it. I love that. Um, just don't want to see people thinking they need a pre-workout supplement. Man, you could have a cup of coffee. I usually do a double espresso. You get a good poop, and then you just have a good workout afterwards. Um, two caveats here. Disclaimers that just came to mind. First and foremost, the 
clinically effective dose of caffeine in the research is likely higher than you need to get your workout in. So while some of these pre-workout supplements might tout that they have clinically effective doses of, of ingredients, and, and that is actually a really good thing. You want supplement companies that care. Shout out Legion Athletics. I love you guys. Like you're very committed to having clinically effective doses of stuff. No proprietary blends, no fucking matrixes. Each ingredient in an effective dose that's been proven in the literature. However, that effective dose of caffeine, and I'll call out Legion now. I love Legion. It's my favorite company ever. Their pre-workout, if you take the full serving, has 350 milligrams of caffeine because that's in the ballpark of, you know, what the literature says in terms of caffeine benefit for a workout. But man, you don't need 350 milligrams of caffeine to get your fucking 30 to 75 minute hypertrophy or strength training workout in. You just don't. And same thing with energy drinks. They just probably have too much caffeine or, or way more than is necessary. And if you're having other coffee throughout the day, that total caffeine intake across the day tends to, to rack up very quick. And just for a quick reference, you know, obviously it matters like how big you are and how big of a person you are, but anywhere from like two to four grams per kg, two to four milligrams per kg of caffeine is, is likely just like enough plenty for like a regular basis for a daily life. And for instance, for me, I think I'm quick math here. What am I? 85 kg or something. That's something like between 160 and 320, let's say roughly milligrams of caffeine per day, including pre-workout. And now I'm going to take like a 350 milligram pre-workout or a bang or something. Like it just seems excessive, especially when most of our workouts, man, don't fucking kid yourself. Most of us are doing, and again, I'm not saying you're not training hard. You are, but like you'll probably be fine with 150 milligram cup of coffee. Do you need fucking 300 milligram C4 to the dome, fucking scooping into your mouth and getting jacked up and then you don't sleep for four days? Like, no, you probably don't need that. So while I think pre-workout supplements are totally fine, I think they have a fuck ton of caffeine. And I think people just assume that they're like a cup of coffee. They're not, they're usually way more. So just take a look at the pre-workout supplement that you're taking. And I, I'm not, I, I'm not here to just give like blanket general recommendations, but anywhere from like 100 milligrams to like 250, especially on the higher end of that spectrum, man, that's more than enough to get a really, really great workout and a really, really great effect from caffeine. And yes, sorry, I'm going the weeds here. I just don't want to, I don't want to leave these disclaimers unturned. Like, yeah, okay. We all are different. We have different responses to caffeine and I don't want anybody to be like, well, it doesn't do anything to me. All right. Like hot shot. But maybe if you're having 300 milligrams of caffeine and it's not doing anything to you, maybe you have a bigger problem. All right, guys, thank you for listening. Um, if you liked the episode, uh, take a screenshot and throw it up on your social media. I appreciate you guys listening. I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you enjoyed it, if you found value, do me a favor and take a screenshot of your phone and post it to your social media. If you do, tag me so I can say thanks. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Jordan Lips Fitness on Instagram or you can email me, jordanlips at jordanlipsfitness.com or check out the website, jordanlipsfitness.com. I'd love to chat. Have a great day.